It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. There's an uptick in denials related to the level of care provided versus the level of care billed. It's happening in Maryland, but could it be a national problem? Reporting our lead story this morning is Dr. Andrew Hughes. He's reporting from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, the aforementioned state of Maryland. Also on the rundown, healthcare attorney David Glazer has an unusual twist to his risky business segment. He also has a Monitor Monday listener survey. Nicole Emanuel is standing by with her exclusive reporting on Medicaid State of the Union. CMS released the 2019 Medicare Inpatient Prospective Payment System proposed rule, and some of the new changes come from the recently passed Bipartisan Budget Act. Dwayne Abbey will have that report. Whistleblower attorney Mary Inman reports from London on a major drug bust, this one involving a major payer and a major pharmacy chain. And Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer has our Medicare Advantage report. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ron LaHirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. First, let me give a shout-out to all the listeners who attended the ACMA National Conference and stopped by to say hi. I'm also now reporting from the American College of Physician Advisors Conference, and excuse the background noise. But on to today's news. Did all of you read the 1,800-page 2019 IPPS proposed rule? No, probably not. And to be honest, I didn't read it all either. But I did read the parts that matter to Monitor Monday listeners. Now, why didn't I read it all? Well, I started. I was reading the section on the proposed changes to DRGs, and there was a section on adding DRGs for patients with stroke who required mechanical ventilation. It appeared someone had asked CMS to consider adding these DRGs for those patients because the stroke DRGs don't adequately compensate patients for the costs of patients who need mechanical ventilation. Okay, I was intrigued. So I read through the analysis, and let me tell you, when they do an analysis for DRG assignments, they go crazy. They look at every past claim of each of the DRGs. They look at the HICS-PICS codes. They look at the length of stay and the costs. Then they look at the same admissions for patients who didn't have mechanical ventilations, and they look at the lengths of stay and costs for all those. Then they look at major diagnostic category, categories in patients that required mechanical ventilation, and they compared them. And after 24 pages of reading and trying to comprehend this complex, in-depth analysis, I was on the edge of my seat waiting for the announcement of new DRGs. So what did they do? They went and stated, therefore, we are not proposing to add new DRGs. Really? I mean, that was uncalled for. They could have said that in the first paragraph, that a new proposal was received, analyzed, and rejected, and here is why, and then I would have skipped the details. So that ended my page-by-page reading. And now look what I just did. I wasted two minutes of your time whining about my wasted time. But what was important in there? Well, CMS has proposed adding hospice transfers to the post-acute transfer payment policy. So if you transfer an inpatient to hospice, you may be subject to a payment reduction depending on the length of stay. They also took out one line from the regulation on outlier certification that no one ever knew was there, 
and the impact of which will be zero. But the big news, of course, is the proposal to back off on the admission order requirements. It sounds like an admission order authentication prior to discharge will no longer be required, and that is a good thing. But it also seems to say that admission order may not be required at all if the other conditions for admission were met. But before you get excited, run back and start telling your doctors they can be doctors again. I think, as with most things that CMS says, there are many more questions than there are answers. And I've outlined many of those questions in my RAC Monitor article from last week. So if you haven't read it, do it. And stay tuned for answers, we hope. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the Medicare Advantage Report is Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer. Good morning, Paul. What's the latest? Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Well, uh, we are in that season where there's a flurry of activity with regard to proposed and final rules being released by Medicare. And a few things jumped out at me that I'd wanted to share with the audience. The first uh, thing that was released uh, in the past week was the uh, fiscal year 2019 uh, IPPS and long-term acute care uh, proposed rule uh, and request for information. Uh, now, uh, Emily is going to share uh, a link for everyone at the end of my segment in order to uh, access a fact sheet that goes over some of the uh, changes that are proposed. Some of the change, big changes that are being proposed in this uh, proposed rule uh, have to do with uh, measures uh, in the inpatient setting. Uh, many are being removed because they're duplicative. There are some that are being uh, added or modified, and there's quite a long list within that fact sheet. Rather than taking up a lot of your time and looking into that, uh, I just want to have uh, our listeners have that link and they can look over some of those uh, measures for themselves. Uh, one uh, piece of information that jumped out at me with regard to Medicare Part C was uh, data integrity ratings uh, that CMS will give uh, to Medicare Advantage plans uh, when the data that they are sharing with CMS is either inaccurate, incomplete, or biased. Uh, now, what they are, what they finalized in this particular rule was. Uh, the idea that CMS is going to downgrade a contract star rating on a particular measure to one star uh, out of uh, four, uh, depending on whether that agency's uh, uh, data has been deemed to be inaccurate, incomplete, or biased. As we know, if I've, I've talked about uh, some of the challenges in the Medicaid arena when data it does not have uh, a solid uh, integrity behind it. Now we're going to see a little bit more of that uh, information filtering down to Medicare Advantage plans, and if they're not keeping that data close to the vest, and if there are not uh, serious improvements in the way they collect that data, uh, the Medicare Advantage plan may be seeing a lowering of payments. Now, this is separate from the 3.9% payment spike that Medicare Advantage plans are going to be seeing throughout 2019, but it remains to be seen whether the data will be affecting some of their reimbursement as time goes on. And that is it from the Medicare Advantage space, and with that, I'll throw it back to Chuck. 
Thanks, Paul, very much. That was Monitor Monday National Correspondent, J. Paul Spencer. Paul is a senior healthcare consultant with Doctors Management. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Nicole Emanuel, Mary Inman, Dwayne Abbey, and our special guest, Dr. Andrew Hughes. This is Monday. It's April 30th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. E&M services are the most targeted services for government audits. Overutilization of E&M services can drive auditing. Having a better understanding of the documentation requirements for E&M services, as well as knowing their medical necessity, will provide more accurate leveling of those services. Tomorrow, during an exclusive Rack Monitor webcast, nationally prominent healthcare expert Shannon DeConda will review the documentation requirements for the E&M Level 4 and 5 encounters, as well as the medical necessity of each level. Register to attend Avoid Medical Necessity Pitfalls when documenting E&M Levels 4 and 5. This important webcast comes your way tomorrow, Tuesday, May 1st at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register by simply clicking on the ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or call 800-252-1578, extension 2. Here now with a twist on the Monitor Monday Risky Business segment is healthcare attorney David Glazer, and David also has the Monitor Monday listener survey. So, David, uh, not taking a risk, that's a bad risk? It certainly can be, Chuck. So every week we talk about risky business, but real risk and how we perceive risk can be radically different. To illustrate, let's look at this week's poll. There have been some recent accidents involving automated vehicles, including one where the vehicle struck and killed a pedestrian. Now, let's assume we could predict the number of vehicle-related deaths in the U.S. if all cars were automated. What, in your mind, would be a tolerable number of deaths? That is, what's the most deaths you would permit before banning automated cars is unsafe? And you can see the choices up there. They range from one death a year to 100,000 deaths a year. What would you tolerate before you'd ban these cars? This question is designed to get at an interesting quirk of perception. When an automated car kills someone, our brains tend to think of those automated cars as dangerous, and we should ban them. But somewhere around 40,000 people are killed in motor vehicle pedestrian accidents each year in America. Many of those are the result of human error. While many people would say one death is too many and advocate the banning of automated cars if there are a handful of deaths, We're better off with automated cars if they kill fewer people than already die on the roads. So what does this have to do with compliance risk? We often focus on the risk associated with action while discounting the risk associated with inaction. Change seems riskier than the status quo. For example, when I've recommended that a client voluntarily disclose a situation to the government, I'm often asked, well, won't we get in trouble? The answer, of course, is that self-disclosure may result in further questions. In my experience, additional scrutiny is quite rare, but it's not unprecedented. It's possible. But focusing on the risks associated in the disclosure are terribly misguided. It's the wrong question. A better question is whether the risk associated with the voluntary disclosure is higher or lower than the risk of remaining silent. In fact, the analysis is even a bit more complicated. Often, we must compare the small risk of an event that has a very high cost with the larger risk of an event with a very small cost. For whatever reason, our brain seems to place more weight on risks associated with change than it does on risks associated with the status quo. We also seem to undervalue the probability of something happening 
if that something hasn't happened already. The fact that you haven't had a car accident or that you haven't yet been caught breaking a Medicare rule offers little insight about the risk of either in the future. Another quirk of the way our brains work is that we feel worse about losing something we already hold than gaining something new. Michael Lewis's book, The Undoing Project, does a great job of explaining research by Kahneman and Tversky exploring this. There's certainly a risk that this psychological trait can cause an organization to hesitate to pay back money it's already received. Now, to be clear, I think that my job as a lawyer is to help an organization keep money when it's provided a valuable service to a patient. The desire to keep that money isn't flawed, but it's helpful to consider whether we're rationally analyzing the risks associated with the decision or just trying to keep what we've already got. Now let's see how rational our audience is. We can see that the overwhelming majority of people, it's like, let's see, 69% would ban cars for killing just 40 people a year. And actually, when we get up to 400, I think we're up to close to 80% of the population. So you can see our collective sense of risk is really skewed. Take the advice of Steve Winwin and say, when you see a chance, then take it and turn it back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder at the law firm of Fredericks and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. The proposed IPS rule has some elements from the recently passed Bipartisan Budget Act. And with more on this report is author, educator, and consultant Dwayne Abbey. Good morning, Dwayne. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Uh, yes, those of you that like to uh, read uh, congressional bills and the uh, Federal Register, you certainly are, well, you're in good stead uh, with me at least. Uh, recently, the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018 was passed. Big bill, 2,200 pages or so. There's a lot in there about health care. Now, it's kind of a hodgepodge of things. So you're going to have to look at this bill, and then you'll see some of this coming out in the uh, IPPS and the uh, OPPS uh, proposed rule of federal registers. But uh, you should take a look at the list, check to see if there's anything there that might possibly affect you. There are about three dozen different items, some big, some small. Uh, so I just want you to take the time to take a look. I'll take just a few examples here. One of the small things is with critical access hospitals and physician supervision. Now, physician supervision is the condition of payment, and uh, it is yet to be thoroughly audited, although I'm seeing some activity in this area. But this is a small piece of the bill because back in 2017, they forgot to uh, indicate the non-enforcement of the supervisory rule, and this bill fits in that gap. Uh, another one that's already been mentioned is a discharge to hospice. The fact that hospice care is now going to be subject to the DRG transfer rule 
And this comes directly from the Bipartisan Budget Act. Outpatient therapy caps. Well, they've been repealed, but now we have a modifier that we have to contend with, uh, and also they've reduced the uh, auditing uh, threshold. Intensive cardiac rehab, another one. Uh, Congress wants this to be liberalized, and so we'll see some new rules with that as well. Uh, note that it is a physician that must provide the supervision. Uh, telehealth stroke services, it's very clear that Congress would like to expand telehealth services, but we have some significant geographic restrictions in that the originating site must be in a rural area. So everyone, uh, along with all of the other things that you need to look at, please take a look at the Bipartisan Budget Act. Uh, those things that are in there, about three, maybe four dozen different things that uh, relate to health care. With that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dwayne, very much. That was author, educator, and consultant, Dwayne Abbey. Dwayne is president of Abbey and Abbey Consultants, and you can read Dwayne's reporting on the Bipartisan Budget Act in this Thursday's RAC Monitor. As you heard us mentioned before, RAC Monitor has published an exclusive report on Medicaid State of the Union by healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Here now is Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, and thank you for having me again for part three of the State of the Union on Medicaid. We left off last week with Missouri, so we're going to start this week in Montana. A new proposed rule, which would take effect April the 1st, would move Montana's addiction counseling from a needs-based to a cap of 12 individual sessions. Considering we're almost in May, this rule may be retroactive, so expect audits to recoup if the rule passes. In Nebraska, Nebraska has paid millions to the federal government in the past few years for noncompliance. Many think Nebraska will owe millions more. Audits on providers will increase in Nebraska to compensate for money paid to the federal government in all service types. In Nevada, pain management providers and pharmacies will be the target of Nevada Medicaid audits. In New Mexico, many of you will remember that in 2013, the government put 15 behavioral health care providers out of business. Speculation has it that after the election this year, thus taking Governor Susana Martinez out of office, the providers may get compensated. In the audit news in New Mexico, auditors are focused on the delivery of babies and services to the elderly. In New York, a state appellate court ruled in September 2017 that home care agencies must pay live-in home health aides 24 hours per day, and not the 13 hours that is the industry standard. Home care agencies have typically paid employees for 13 hours of work per day, assuming that they are allowed eight hours of sleep and three hours for meal. If the decision stands, it means that agencies must pay for an additional 11 hours of care per day, almost doubling the cost of care. It's estimated that it will increase costs for home care in New York's Medicaid program by tens of millions of dollars. 
in Ohio, the pharmacists in Ohio, the association, has over alleged that CVS Caremark overcharges Medicaid managed care plans for medications while often reimbursing pharmacists less than the cost of the drug. CVS has denied these accusations, but we will see the results as it unfolds. In South Dakota audit news, program integrity has ramped up the number of audits and prepayment reviews, especially on behavioral health care, dental, hospital, and home health providers. In Virginia audit news, program integrity spotlight is shining on long-term care facilities, durable medical equipment, transportation, and hospitals. In Vermont audit news, Vermont, interestingly, only has 188 beds in the mental health system, and patients are placed on waiting lists or forced to rely on hospital ERs. This is an ongoing problem for patients and hospitals. And with that, I am wrapped up with the State of the Union, and you can read the full report on Rack Monitor. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a Rack Monitor contributor and a partner of the Potomac Law Group. And you can read her report on the Rack Monitor website. We now switch live to London, and we check in with whistleblower Mary Inman, who reports from London on a major drug bust, this one involving a major payer and a major pharmacy. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Chuck and everyone. In February 2014, whistleblower Sarah Benke, the former senior Medicare Part D actuary at Aetna, filed a sealed complaint against CVS Caremark, the pharmacy benefit management department of healthcare giant CVS Health accusing the company of billing Medicare Part D and Medicaid a higher price for prescription drugs than it pays to retail pharmacies, a practice known as spread pricing. A few weeks ago, the complaint was unsealed when the government declined to intervene in the whistleblower's case. The two companies, CVS and Aetna, are also currently in the process of trying to merge. If a Part D plan uses a PBM, both the plan and the PBM are required to submit information regarding drug prices, including any discounts or rebates, and to report that to CMS. The plan must also report any difference between the aggregate amount the plan pays its PBM and the amount the PBM pays retail pharmacies. The whistleblower's complaint focuses on Caremark's actions, which allegedly caused CMS to be overbilled through its contracts with Aetna, which provides benefits to 750,000 Part D beneficiaries. In 2010, Aetna signed a contract with CVS Caremark under which the PBM's responsibilities included administering a network of pharmacies to serve Aetna beneficiaries, negotiating drug prices on Aetna's behalf, and providing Aetna with complete drug cost data. In 2012, CVS Caremark informed Aetna that the maximum allowable price for 229 drugs, representing 59% of Aetna's beneficiaries' drug utilization, would increase by an average of 13%. Sarah Benke, the whistleblower, did an investigation following the price increase and discovered that CVS Caremark had been charging significantly higher rates than other Part D sponsors pay for the same drugs. For example, the price of lisinopril, a drug used to treat hypertension, ranged from $1.54 to $3.02 for other plans, but Aetna paid $4.69. 
In 2013, Aetna alerted CVS Caremark to Venke's findings and asked whether the PBM could use this information to negotiate better prices for Aetna or if CVS was getting some sort of rebate that they were not passing along to Aetna and thus concealing from CMS. CVS allegedly responded that it had negotiated lower prices with retail pharmacies, but under their agreement with Aetna was not required to pass these prices on to the insurer. Aetna disagreed with this interpretation of the contract, although the complaint admits that this behavior would be acceptable on the commercial side of the business. Aetna also uses CVS as its PBM for administering commercial plans. According to the complaint, this caused CMS to pay higher prices than they would have if CVS Caremark behaved in a lawful and transparent fashion. The whistleblower brought this suit under the Federal False Claims Act, a law that allows private parties to report fraud against the government and receive 15 to 30 percent of the recovery as an award. Under the FCA, the government has an option to join the lawsuit and sue an alleged fraudster alongside the whistleblower or, as happened in this case, decline to intervene. CVS has denied the allegations and the case is proceeding to litigation. We will continue to track this case as it unfolds. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Mary, very much. I was whistleblower attorney Mary Inman reporting from London, where she's the partner in the law firm of Constantine Cannon. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, there's an uptick in denials related to the level of care provided versus the level of care billed. It's happening in Maryland, but could be a national problem. Reporting our lead story this morning is Dr. Andrew Hughes. Good morning, Dr. Hughes. Thank you for having me, Chuck. It was widely recognized after CMS adopted meaningful use and the widespread transition to electronic medical records that EMR transition affected billing by hospitals. For payers that have per diem contracts with hospitals for inpatient care, different facility fee rates are often negotiated for a medical surgical floor bed, intermediate care bed, and ICU bed. Identifying discrepancies between what the payer determines as the correct bed level and what the hospital bills is referred to as bed leveling. In Maryland, due to the state's all-payer rate-setting CMS waiver, all hospital payer contracts are per diem, and the issue of bed leveling is of particular importance. Hospital bed rates are set by the state and identical for all payers, but vary from hospital to hospital. Most hospital bed rates are charged per diem at three levels, floor, intermediate, and ICU, with adjustments for special subgroups of patients such as oncology, transplant, and pediatric. Unlike with DRGs, under this system, payers review each day for the appropriateness of visit class, inpatient versus outpatient, and also whether the bed level of care billed is medically appropriate. Sometimes discrepancies occur because there is a difference in opinion between the treating physicians and the payer as to the medically appropriate bed level for an inpatient. Unlike visit class disputes, payers may not refer to this as a denial, but the end result is the same. Payers do not want to pay what the hospital feels is appropriate. Other discrepancies can occur due to automated billing practices through EMRs. One such example is when a patient is determined by his or her physicians to be stable for downgrade, and a transfer has been initiated but not yet effectuated due to lack of an available bed, such as waiting in the ICU for an available floor bed. The bed level of care to be billed may be determined in the EMR based on an accommodation code, ICU, intermediate, floor, which may be programmed to default to the patient's current location. This corresponds to the charge routed and ultimately the bed charge billed. An obvious EMR-based solution to ensure the correct bed level charge is an automated one that would change the accommodation code upon a downgrade order. However, based on some contracts, 
The exact accommodation code and corresponding bed charge also varies from unit to unit within the hospital, even at the same care level, i.e. cardiac ICU versus neuro ICU or transplant floor versus oncology floor. It becomes exceedingly complex for the EMR to determine what, which exact new accommodation code is appropriate because it depends on numerous patient and hospital factors and ultimately may not be known until the patient actually gets to their new location. A manual process with review by nurses to change the accommodation code is possible but labor-intensive. This problem is of particular relevance in Maryland because of all in-state patients are charged per diem rates. Exploring with colleagues in other states, we have found that a varying proportion of the commercial contracts use similar per diem rate setting with daily pay review of bed level of care, so this issue has a broader impact. Bed leveling discrepancies may not have been emphasized by payers in the past, perhaps due to a lack of savings given the amount of effort needed to identify these discrepancies. However, due to ever-increasing financial pressures and the potential for billing errors resulting from automated EMR billing practices, payers' scrutiny of bed level of care is likely only to increase. Workflow development and EMR vendor partnership to address this issue will be increasingly important in the future. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hughes. That was Dr. Andrew Hughes. Dr. Hughes is Instructor of Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and you can read his article on this new issue in Thursday's Rack Monitor E-News. That's going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Dwayne Abbey, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hurst, J. Paul Spencer, and, of course, our special guest whom you just heard, Dr. Andrew Hughes. We thank you for being with us, and we look forward to your joining me tomorrow. That's when... Shannon DeConnick conducts her important webcast on how to avoid medical necessity pitfalls when documenting E&M levels 4 and 5. That's tomorrow, 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us today. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. <laughs>